0: The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome to Know Your Bible. Glad that you've come back this week to study the Bible some more with us and that's what we'll be doing. For the next 30 minutes is looking into the Bible to answer some of your questions. Uh, maybe you've never watched this program before, and if so, let me tell you quickly how we operate. Uh, you'll see a phone number and a website on your screen. You can use those anytime. Give us a call or log on. And if you've got a question about the Bible, anything in the Bible, or maybe something in life that you wonder what the Bible would say about it, That's what we'll try to answer for you. So we operate on your questions. You direct the program, and we try to answer them as quickly as we can, and we hope when we're all done. We all know our Bible a little bit better. Toby Levering's back this morning. Good morning, Toby. Hi, Steve. Here to help me answer questions. I'm Steve Tandy, and we're going to, like I said, answer as many as we can. But we always give our viewers one first to work on during the program. So here's your trivia question for the day. Uh, Fill in the blanks question. Paul said, while we were yet something, Christ died for us. See if you can... Find or know the answer to that fill-in-the-blank question. I guess you could get bonus points if you even know the scripture where it's found. We'll we'll give you the answer at the end of the program. All right. Looks like I drew number one today. So let's talk about numbers for a little while. viewer says, does the number 40 have a special deeper meaning in the Bible? Is the number 40 a special number? Well, uh, there is a field, I guess you could call it, of studying biblical numerology. There are people that make a real big deal out of trying to figure out what all the numbers mean and if some of them are special and have kind of a secret meaning. And there are some numbers in the Bible that seem to be repeated. Uh, Seven is a pretty cool number in the Bible uh, because it always seems to represent perfection. And some people attach a great deal of meaning to that. Uh, three is used a lot, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and some other threes in the Bible. So some people think that's special. And then 40 does happen a lot. Uh, the Israelites wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, Moses spent 40 days on the mountain. There was 40 days in the Jonah story. Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, There were 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. So some people look at all those and think, okay, 40 is really special. We've got to understand what it means. And and it's okay to study all those and think about them. But I think the important thing to remember is the Bible is not written in code. It's not a secret document that we have to decode somehow. There's no code we've got to break. Uh, it's written in plain, I started to say plain English. It's written in plain Hebrew <laughs> and plain Greek, uh, which we have translated into English. And that's what we need to understand is the word, not any kind of a, a secret puzzle that we got to figure out. So 40 does seem to be used a lot. Uh, interesting, but I don't think there's any deep secret meaning to it at all, uh, and I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time studying biblical numerology other than finding it a little interesting. All right, Toby, what's your viewer after?
1: Uh, you wanna, i got a uh, question about sin here. Why is it a sin to have multiple wives when lots of great men of the Bible have had more than one? you ever have a child that you tell them specifically not to do something, uh, and they come up with the uh, great reasoning that everyone else was doing it, well, that doesn't really fly, does it? A proper parent will say, well, I I don't really care what everyone else was doing. My will for you was this. All right, that's uh, the uh, comparable to your question here you 're asking, well, what about polygamy? seems like there were lots of guys in the Bible that did it doesn 't that make it okay no it doesn 't make it okay at all. Uh, the reason is because other guys, uh, great or not, men of faith or not uh, that 's not the standard for righteousness uh, a sin of any type. I mean, think about it you You could use the the same logic with any other sin well. You know, uh, there were lots of guys in the Bible, great men of faith, who lied. Uh, Doesn't that make it okay? Uh, There were lots of great men of the Bible who drank and got drunk. Doesn't that make it all right? Uh, There were great men of the Bible who committed adultery. Doesn't that make it okay? No. (laughs) The Bible is an honest book, honest about the goodness of God and the wickedness of men. And uh, the consistent theme throughout that is God is always good and uh, that all of us fall short of the glory of God, Uh, great men of faith or not. So what we want to look at from the Bible is what God God says about the matter, regardless of what anyone else says. uh, What does God say about the matter? When it comes to marriage, here's what he says. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and following. Jesus, here speaking, says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female, And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Note the singular there. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one Separate. Now, says God's standard for marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. That didn't change. Now, human beings have messed that up in all sorts of ways, um, but God's standard hasn't changed. So, uh, it's a sin because God says so, and just because everyone else is doing it, no matter who they are, uh, doesn't make it right if God doesn't say it's right. Hope that helps you.
0: All right, big question here. How was God created? Our viewer says, when people ask me that, I don't know how to respond. Well, like I said, that's a big question. Where did God come from? Now, the Bible assumes the existence of God. That's the way it starts. Let's look at Genesis 1.1. It just says, in the beginning, God. When the world began, it was because God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, In the beginning of time, in the beginning of everything we know, God created. So it doesn't explain where he came from or how or why or anything else, it just says he was there. And that's the answer. (laughs) He was there. He's he's always been. He pre-exists everything. Uh, Psalm 90 and verse 2 makes it a little more specific. The psalmist said, Before the mountains were born, or you give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the Bible just says, Before everything we know was, God was. Now, that's hard for us because we, everything we see has a beginning and an end. Uh, we know when we were born, we know we're going to die someday, we, everything we see. We know they had a beginning and they're going to have an end. So that's the frame that we're in. So when we ask the question, oh, well, how was, when was God's beginning? Uh, well, we get into very difficult territory. Now, not immediately. Uh, you have a small child and they say, where did God come from? And you say, "Well, he's always been. He just always existed." Uh, they say, "Okay, that, that that makes sense to me." But when we get a little older and people start asking us questions, like our viewer said, "How do we explain this?" Well, let me give you a couple things that might help you answer that sometime. Number one, the the question is a bad question, uh, and as Kind of a silly example, let me ask you this. What does the color blue smell like? And you say, well, that's a really dumb question because blue, the color blue, doesn't have an odor. They're in different categories. One's a color, one's an odor. That's what I'm trying to point out. When you ask, when did God begin? How was he created? You're asking about something that's in a different category. Everything we know has a beginning and an end. God is in a totally different category. Uh, He didn't have a beginning and an end. So to ask a question, when did a being with no beginning and end begin, is a ridiculous question. Uh, And uh, atheists and skeptics might say, well, that's unscientific. That's a silly example. Well, okay then if you want to get scientific, consider the alternative. You tell me where everything came from. And I admit, they're going to write lots of books and lots of theories about the Big Bang Theory and this matter and all of this. You know, had a big explosion, and that's how everything started and all that. But they've got to keep being scientific and figure out where that came from. And that brings them to the scientific fact, the scientific certainty that from nothing comes nothing. If there is nothing, then nothing can come from it. It, it, Nothing would ever start. So there could not have been a time when nothing existed if there is something the thing that existed always that we call God is what created everything else. Okay. Now, some of you say, well, I don't know about that. Well, even atheists and skeptics and evolutionists admit that's the problem. And I found a quote from a fellow named David Shiga who's an evolutionist. He wrote a big long article in New Scientist magazine called The Beginning. What triggered the Big Bang? And he goes on at great length about how it all started and what happened and how this explosion happened. But in the last line of the article, here's what he says. The quest to understand the origin of the universe seems destined to continue until we can answer a deeper question. Why is there anything at all instead of nothing? So even scientists get to that point. Of the fact is there never was nothing. There was always God. So, he wasn't created to ask the questions of logical impossibility. Uh, He just always was. And then we're clear back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. So, wasn't created, he's always been. Let me take just a moment and talk to you about studying the Bible and We've got some good ways to study the Bible. We've got some tools that will help you get started in Bible study if you're interested in that. Here's an eight-lesson course that's just real basic. Starts by explaining the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Good way to get started. Then we've got some more advanced courses. That uh, one of them goes on for quite a while about uh, just the life of Jesus. You can learn a lot about him and how to the Gospels. So, great studies. Good way. To learn the Bible. Uh, some people want to do things online these days, so we've got some online studies, oneway.worldbibleschool.org. Just log on there, give them your information, and you'll start studying the Bible online with phone or pad or whatever you've got. You can study the Bible right along with us. So all of those are good ways. Phone number, website at the bottom of the screen. Get in touch with us. Tell us you'd like that free course. Uh, And they all are absolutely free, by the way. We even pay the postage if you do the mail-in lessons. So uh, no cost to you except a little bit of time. And at the end of it, you'll know a whole lot more about your Bible. So give us a try. All right, Toby, what
1: you got? A question about angels. We get those from time to time. The question is, can angels assume human form and live among us? And the answer to that is... Yes, they can. They have, uh, and the Scripture seems to indicate that they do. Angels are simply servants of God. In the Greek, the word uh, is the word angelos, and it simply means a servant. They do the Lord's bidding. They do what He wants. And so uh, they take the form that is uh, most efficacious to their purpose, uh, what they're trying to achieve. Uh, We see examples in Genesis where angels took human form to help uh, abraham uh... we know that they were able to eat and and consume food so they took on human form we know that angels in some form helped uh, lot <coughs> and his family uh... there's a cool story in the book of joshua i'll read it uh, when uh, joshua chapter five when joshua was by jericho he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said, Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. A very, very uh, special, unique uh, experience that Joshua had there. But certainly, angels sometimes take human form uh, to do the bidding of the Lord as he sees fit. And there are other times, there are other places in the Bible where uh, angels take uh, non human form or uh, supernatural forms and they're glowing or uh, doing things that uh, normal human beings could not do. Uh, the point is, angels are created beings and they do the Lord's bidding. And sometimes that means taking human form. Now, the question you ask about, do they take human form? How do we know that they do today? Hebrews chapter thirteen, verse two, the writer of Hebrews seems to indicate this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, there's a, a cool thought for you. Well, what does that all mean? Well, the writer of Hebrews doesn't tell us very much other than to say, hey, practice hospitality because sometimes you're you're serving a, a servant that serves someone uh, much higher than you so anyway kind of cool to think about but that's uh, that's the word from the word
0: all righty thank you uh, I read about Jesus driving out demons do people actually have demons inside their body well interesting question uh, and the relationship of spiritual beings to physical is kind of well, that kind of it's difficult for us to understand. Uh, we can't even explain how our spirit is in our body, uh, the difference and where it is, and all that, and how demons operate in people's body. We can't explain that either. Now, the Bible does indicate and uses terminology that indicates that yes, demons can be in people's body, or at least they. Could be in people's bodies. Uh, When Jesus found a demon possessed person, it says he cast them out of the person. So, sounds to me pretty much like demons were inside someone's body and controlling that person physically and verbally in lots of ways. Okay, now I said that could happen. I think I, I know it did happen. I think that was for a special purpose. I think it was limited for a time, and uh, we won't go into all the verses that make me believe that, but uh, for a period when Jesus was on the earth, there was a lot of demonic activity. I believe that God allowed the demons some freedom there. He unchained some of them for a while uh, so that Jesus could show his power. And Jesus and his apostles and uh, the believers did show their power over demons. Now, then I think they were rechained and limited. And God does put limits on Satan and his demons. Uh, We know that from the book of Job and other places. He allows some things and doesn't allow others. And he talks about Satan being chained for a time. Uh, I think the main verse that helps us understand that today is this one from the uh, book of James, James chapter 4 and verse 7. James said, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All right. To me that rules out the fact that a demon's going to come around and possess somebody all of a sudden. No, you resist them and they'll flee from you. So I don't think we can be possessed against our will like it seems to have happened in the New Testament... ...because there were some young people that were possessed in the, the New Testament. I don't think that happens today against our will. Now, I will not rule out uh, the fact that if you mess around with Satan... ...if you get involved in the occult and, and start worshiping Satan or, or dealing with Satan... Uh, I'm not ruling out the possibility that he can possess you some way. Uh, I don't know how that works. I don't know anything about how exorcism works today or not. Uh, but I won't deny that Satan might have that power today. But for a believer, for a Christian, uh, I don't think we got anything to worry about. Or for an ordinary person that's not inviting demons in... I don't think we've got anything to worry about. We resist. He'll flee from us. Uh, I think we're safe from that. But, yes, in the Bible, demons did possess people. They were in their bodies somehow. Possibly happens today. Uh, but we have a guarantee from God that we resist. It won't happen to us. We take take this moment and invite you to visit a church of Christ near you. Uh, this program's kept on the air by Churches of Christ in your area, and we like to mention a few of them each week. Uh, today we're going to go up to our partners up in South Dakota, a great ministry up there broadcast uh, out of Sioux Falls, and uh, there are a number of churches up there that help support this program, Mitchell Church of Christ, Watertown, Brookings, uh, all of those are folks that believe in the, the message of the Bible. And... Uh, like to help us spread that uh, information about the Bible on Know Your Bible. So if you live in one of those communities or close to them, uh, you've got some folks that know about Know Your Bible. Uh, If you're looking for a church home, drop in sometime. They'd welcome you warmly. You'd find folks that study and think about the Bible like we do here on Know Your Bible. Uh, You'd be warmly welcomed. Uh, Whatever area you're in. There's probably a Church of Christ near you, whatever broadcast area. We invite you to drop in and visit them. Or maybe you know a member of the Church of Christ somewhere. Tell them. I was watching a program called Know Your Bible the other day, and I see that you guys sponsor that. Appreciate you keeping it on the air. So uh, visit the Church of Christ sometime. All right, Toby, what do you got?
1: We have a question about the foolishness of God. 1 Corinthians one twenty-five mentions the foolishness and weakness of God why is he talked about this way this is one of those questions as uh, we require you to get out your shovels because you have to do a little digging here okay and this is you mentioned um, uh 1 Corinthians 125 the key as with many questions on our program is is a little bit of context so if we instead of just you know getting real close to a single verse let's back up and look at a few verses of course if you look at the whole book of uh 1 Corinthians which is originally a letter written to the church at Corinth uh we Get a little picture here now. Uh, context always always helps us in understanding something that we don 't understand we' let the word explain itself uh, verse uh, verse eighteen in first Corinthians chapter one says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, understand what Paul is talking about here. The church of Corinth was a very, uh, the the, the city of Corinth was a very worldly uh, uh, culture. Uh, very cosmopolitan and there were lots of Greeks that loved to come and debate and pursue wisdom and knowledge and they were always looking for the newest idea and Paul is probably addressing an objection by some of these new Christians at Corinth that this Christ when I bring him up uh, this is mocked the idea of God being crucified. That seems like folly to the Greeks. And Paul's addressing that and saying uh, the core of what Christ is, and more specifically Christ crucified, is the wisdom of God, the manifold purpose of God. From, from Genesis all the way to, to that point, God had been revealing this plan. And even though it was the purpose and the wisdom of God Worldly wisdom saw it as foolish. For Jews, this is verse 22, for Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, Paul's not insulting God. He's making a comparison, saying, even if we could take this, what you have call, called foolish, which is Christ crucified, the, the cross, the gospel message, if you even if we agree with you that that's foolishness, the foolishness of God runs laps around the wisdom of man. And that's the point that Paul is making. So uh, Christ crucified, the hope of the gospel is always greater uh, than man's wisdom. Uh, there's a lot more digging to it, but the short answer is uh, that, that he's not saying God is foolish. He's saying that the purposes of God always outrun uh, the plans and the thoughts of man. I hope that helps you a little bit.
0: All right, question about the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, is the bread actually Christ's body? And the fruit of the vine, actually, his blood. Well, it's been an argument for 2,000 years. Martin Luther and John Calvin argued about that. Uh, Martin Luther said that in First uh, Corinthians 11, Paul quoted Jesus as saying at the Last Supper, this is my body. So oh, he said that proves it. it is. Now, the, the difficulty is that literally, like this viewer asked, actually, If we did a scientific analysis of it, would it be human blood and human flesh? Uh, I don't believe so. Uh, It is symbolically. It represents, and in that sense it is. As an example, when you go to a a ball game or we pledge allegiance to the flag or sing the Star-Spangled Banner, uh, we stand up and many of us get our tears in our eyes because we're looking uh, at a piece of cloth. Well, it is a piece of cloth, a colored piece of cloth, but what we're looking at is America. The flag is America. It represents America in our minds. It is America. And I think that's the way the Lord's Supper ought to be. Uh, while the bread and the juice uh, may be physically uh, not human blood and human flesh, it still is blood and flesh to us it represents that it symbolizes it and in our mind it is so uh, i don't believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation that it physically becomes body and blood uh, but it certainly is symbolically and that's the way we should think of it all right we're out of time today let's get our trivia question answered Uh, while we were yet what Christ died for us. Fill in the blanks question, and the blank says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you got Romans 5, 8, you got the bonus points on this one. Uh, great verse, Paul's proclaiming the gospel there. Uh, Christ died for us while we were still sinners when we didn't deserve it. So hope you got that one, and we'll be back next week with some more of your questions and see if we can find some answers to them in the Bible. We're glad that you've been with us this week. We hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.